The Supreme Court heard oral arguments Tuesday in a blockbuster case on the fate of nearly 700,000 dreamers. These are people without legal status brought to the country as children. Welcome to The Term, a podcast by Law360 to keep you up to speed about the nation's top bench and the justices that preside there. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law360 here in Washington, and joining me now from our New York studio is Law360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. Welcome, Natalie. Hey, Jimmy. So it's been another one of those action-packed short weeks at the court. Um, After the Monday break for Veterans Day, the court had four argument sessions. We're going to be spending the bulk of this show breaking down the biggest of those, which Jimmy mentioned up top, uh, involving the trio of consolidated cases questioning whether or not the administration can end DACA. But first, a little news on the cert front. Among the many denied cases the Supreme Court listed on Tuesday was a bid by gunmaker Remington to stop a lawsuit filed by the families of Sandy Hook shooting victims. Yes, as is typical, the court did not give its reasons for denying cert in the case, but this decision, it's going to open up a landmark Connecticut state case against the gunmaker over its advertising of the Bushmaster AR-15 rifle, which was the obviously the gun that was used in, in the Sandy Hook shooting. Yeah, Remington has argued that allowing this case to move forward will bring a deluge of copycat cases, and so it looks like we're going to find out whether they're right or not. Also on Wednesday, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg missed out on oral arguments due to a stomach bug, um, according to a court spokeswoman. She's going to participate in those cases from the briefs in the uh, recordings of oral arguments. Well, we certainly wish the justice a speedy recovery. Now on to DACA, which I know a lot of our listeners have been waiting for. Uh, to help us break down this complicated blockbuster case, we have senior immigration reporter Suzanne Maniak uh, in the New York studio. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you for having me. Uh, you are have been following this case for months on end, right, basically? Yes. <laughs> so uh, we're grateful to have you here because you can help us kind of break down exactly what the impact of the case will be. Um, but for a lot of the folks who haven't been perhaps as immersed as you have been. Can you tell us a little bit about just exactly what DACA is? Sure. Um, So DACA, or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, uh, was created in 2012 under the Obama administration, and it gives deportation relief and work authorization to young people who don't have legal status but were brought to the U.S. as children. Uh, The program has protected about 800,000 of these young people through its life since 2012, and about 660,000 people are currently on DACA status. So this is a program that's definitely been around for for quite a while. I know a lot of the the young DACA recipients are like, they started in their teens or even younger, and now they're in their like 20s and 30s, right? Yes, a lot of them are in their mid-20s, but they could be as old as late 30s. So how did we end up in court? Well, in 2017, the Trump administration announced that it was planning to terminate the program, which prompted a mountain of litigation. It's now before the U.S. Supreme Court, and they're considering whether the way the Trump administration rescinded the program was illegal, specifically if it violated administrative law. I I know just having kind of looked at some of the Amici briefs, that mountain of Amici briefs, there's like a lot of stakeholders at play here. Um, And... You know, it can be a, a bit of a tense topic, basically. Jimmy, you you were in, in court for oral arguments, right? Yeah, you absolutely saw the stakes of how huge a case this was just by the atmosphere um, at the Supreme Court on Tuesday. There were throngs um, in the hundreds of protesters, many of whom were, you know, uh, pro DACA or even DACA recipients themselves, um, essentially chanting and protesting in favor of the program and against the Trump administration's decision to now unwind it. Again, the press room was uh, packed with reporters, and so was the press section of the courtroom um, during the 80-minute 
oral arguments. Um, it was pretty tight, but uh, essentially I got to sit in and listen to what I thought was a pretty interesting oral argument session where, you know, at the end of it, um, my uh, impression was that the Trump administration um, had the uh, friendlier ear of the Supreme Court and seems at the moment um, like it's going to prevail in the case just based on the tenor of some of the questions at oral arguments. Suzanne, uh, you know, just given your your following of the case and and, and w- w- did that surprise you at all? Kind of the tenor that, that Jimmy's talking about? Uh, no, I can't say I was too surprised by the way the questioning went. It is a conservative majority court. So I was expecting tough questions from the conservative justices on the side of the DACA recipients. And people in the courtroom have largely, that does seem to be the consensus. But attorneys also stress that, you know, we just don't know what's going on inside the heads of the justices. Justice Roberts is, you know, seen as somewhat of a swing vote. So it really could go either way. Jimmy, can you tell us a little bit more just about kind of what you were hearing in arguments, uh, maybe from from the government's perspective? Like, I know their whole thing is Obama started this, so we can end it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's essentially the the first argument that they make is that this is their decision to shut down the program is, you know, unreviewable in court. It's committed to agency discretion by law. And so the Supreme Court has no business, or I guess the Supreme Court should undo the lower court orders, which essentially forced them to maintain the program. The second argument that they had presented was that um, even if it is reviewable and the Supreme Court decides that, you know, these lower courts had the right to go in and, you know, uh, second guess what the Trump administration had done, the Trump administration followed the law. It had a reasonable basis for unwinding the program. And that argument is that DACA was legally dubious in the first place. Therefore, it's perfect fine to get rid of it. Um, you know, as expected, both of those arguments met very strong headwinds from the courts for liberal justices who seemed to think that the rescission was, of course, reviewable and maybe even unreasonable when they did it. Um, you had just a Stephen Breyer who was pointing to that mountain of amicus briefs that you mentioned earlier, Natalie, where, uh, you know, you had 66 healthcare organizations, three unions and 210 educational groups all weighing in in favor of the DACA recipients. So he was saying, you know, did the Trump administration, when it pulled the rug out from underneath of this program, did it give enough consideration to these monumental reliance interests that extend far beyond the, you know, 700,000 recipients of the program themselves, but into all facets of of life? And I just want to also mention one comment by Justice Sonia Sotomayor to that effect on the reliance point. Um, You know, she says Trump, uh, this current president, she doesn't name him by name, but she says this current president has been telling DACA recipients that they were safe under him all along and that he would find a way to keep them here. And she says he hasn't. Instead, he's done this. Um, So isn't that something that the Trump administration should consider as part of um, its decision to unwind this program is, um, you know, how the government has been giving these what turned out to be false reassurances to the DACA recipients themselves all along? Yeah, these reliance interests, I mean, I know we keep talking about kind of that big number, 700,000 immigrants, uh, DACA recipients, uh, but I I know kind of, Suzanne, you you had a great story earlier this week just about, you know, how it it goes beyond the recipients. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and kind of how it's affecting businesses and and corporate interests right now? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, um, this would have a huge impact on DACA recipients themselves. And their families, many of them have U.S. citizen children. But like you said, it does extend beyond that because, you know, this program has been around for seven years now. And these DACA recipients could be as old as 37, 38. They have jobs. They've gone to college. Many have higher degrees. They play not only important roles in their communities, but also in the, in the work world. And especially at a small business, for example, there could be a DACA recipient who's a very key employee there and their employer relies on them. And if the Trump administration is allowed to end DACA, 
they're go- that DACA recipient is going to lose their job and that employer is going to lose a key employee. And and isn't there, I thought I, I, I saw something about um, just how, because there's so much uncertainty that even DACA recipients are, are kind of like on the fence about whether they should even renew their current work authorizations, right? Yeah, there's so much uncertainty. And you're seeing it across the board. Um, employers, even, you know, particularly maybe a smaller company that's, you know, maybe a little unsure of whether they're in compliance are asking their attorneys, you know, what am I am I still good? Like, are there, does this person still have work authorization? Yes, they do, is the answer. Yeah. Um, but attorneys and DOC recipients themselves um, are at times nervous about renewing because they're nervous to put themselves on the Department of Homeland Security's radar, potentially right before their deportation protections are going to be ended. I know a lot of that's tied to basically just some past precedent with the administration kind of using paperwork to, to target certain immigrants, right? Yeah, I mean, the Trump administration has drastically changed their enforcement priorities um, when it comes to deportation. And DACA recipients are afraid that if their DACA, if DACA is ended, that, you know, USCIS could, in theory, share their information with ICE, and then they would be an easy target for ICE to come pick them up, arrest, and deport them. And this was an issue that came up at oral arguments, right, where Chief Justice John Roberts suggested that this was a case that was just about work authorization, seemingly ignoring that big elephant in the room that, you know, looming in the background is the fear that, you know, once this program is rescinded, then all of these um, hundreds of thousands of recipients would be you know, exposed to just a risk of deportation. Isn't that right, Suzanne? Yeah, absolutely. This is not just about work authorization, though that's obviously a key portion of DACA. Um, it's also, advocates have said, it's a, about family separation. Many, as I said, many DACA recipients have children now who are American citizens. And if a parent were to be deported, you know, their children would either have to come with them or they would face the prospect of separating the family. So it's an impossible choice for DACA recipients if the program were to be terminated. These stories, I feel like, really kind of tug at the heartstring a lot of times. And Jimmy, I correct me if I'm wrong, I, I thought, it, you know, some of the conservative justices acknowledged that as well, right? Yeah, I think you're referring to Justice Neil Gorsuch, um, who kind of allowed that the DACA recipients in this case had put forward very, quote, sympathetic facts that speak to all of us, is what he said. Um, but at the end of the day, I would say that the five conservative justices on the court were a little bit more sympathetic to the government. Um, Gorsuch himself and also Justice Sam Alito um, seem to agree with the Trump administration that this is kind of a matter of agency discretion. Um, they both kind of drew the analogy to um, uh, you know a prosecutor's decision in a certain jurisdiction to stop going after certain drug offenses. I mean, surely those, he, they would say, uh, would that decision of prosecutorial policy is not something that's reviewable in courts. Um, you had, around the margins, you had Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts, uh, who were a little bit more guarded, but I think at the end, on the whole, seemed to come down, again, a little bit more in favor of the government. Uh, Ju- Justice Kavanaugh pointed to uh, you know that 2018 memo from uh, then-DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, kind of explaining the rescission, and he was really exploring why that wasn't a good enough explanation for um, the decision to unwind this program. And so when California Solicitor General, who's representing the states in this case, uh, trying to preserve and save DACA, when he calls it boilerplate, Justice Kavanaugh jumps in and says, no, this isn't boilerplate. This is a serious decision that, you know, Nielsen had had written here, and, and we can all agree with that. Um, I would say Chief Justice Roberts kept his hand a little bit closer to the vest. There was that comment about, you know, what actu- the actual stakes of the case were, but he also seemed to be probing a little bit more of, of the attorney for the DACA recipients, trying to understand, you know, what else in, in, in their view the government would have to say to adequately 
um, explain the decision. I think most people recognize that Roberts is the swing vote in this case, um, as he has been in a lot of uh, Supreme Court cases involving controversial Trump policies. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is last term's uh, census case, where you know, in the end, despite you know being particularly soft on the government at oral arguments when the decision came out, he sided against them and said that they had come up with a contrived reason for including uh, a citizenship question on the upcoming 2020 census and sided with the uh, four liberals in that case. You know, whether he does so again in this one, I think remains to be seen. I know we've talked a lot about how kind of it's it's gray skies for for DACA recipients just given oral arguments. But Jimmy, as you mentioned just now, you know, there's there's the swing vote uh, with Justice Roberts. Um, Suzanne, can you tell us a little bit about what happens if the court does give DACA a reprieve? Um, you know, what do experts expect the Trump administration to do next on this issue? Because I have to imagine that, you know, they're not going to just hurt, you know, throw up their hands and say, well, we tried. <laughs> Probably not. If you bring up the census case. Some people are saying that this, you know, that could be a guide for how the Supreme Court acts again. In that case, as Jimmy, you said, the high court said that the Trump administration's reasoning for adding a citizenship question to the census was contrived. The high court could again say that their reasoning for rescinding DACA wasn't good enough. But that could also mean that the Trump administration could have a second shot at rescinding it again, perhaps with more explanation. Now, advocates tell me they think that if DACA went through a full and proper analysis, that the program would survive such a remand, um, that if the agency correctly analyzed the reliance interests as we've been talking about, they would come to the conclusion that they should not rescind it. But in theory, if the Trump administration tries to do so again, beefs up its explanation a bit, it could invite another legal challenge. The fight might not be over, even with a favorable ruling. If it's an unfavorable ruling, do you think there's going to be other legal challenges? There could be. If there's information sharing with ICE about DACA recipients' information, that could invite another legal challenge. Well, it certainly sounds like this just might not be the end of the road at all <laughs> for for DACA. Um, and we'll be, we'll be continuing to... Uh, uh, look at this. And hopefully, Suzanne, will have you back on uh, at a later time. Um, thank you so much for coming up to explain the impact of what the court's ruling might have. Thank you again for having me. Great. Um, looking ahead, Justice Brett Kavanaugh is slated to speak at the Federal Society's annual gala tonight. We are recording on Thursday afternoon. And Jimmy will be in the room to see what the court's newest justice has to say in his first major public appearance since his bruising confirmation fight last term. That's right. Justice Kavanaugh was invited to uh, give these remarks last year at the Federal Society's um, annual Black Tie Gala at Union Station in Washington, D.C., but he decided not to appear um, close as it was to that confirmation battle that you mentioned. So, and, you know, if you can recall the televised Senate proceedings that divided the country uh, uh, last uh, fall as Kavanaugh bitterly denounced uh, allegations that he had committed uh, sexual assault while at a high school party in the 1980s. So tonight's speech is supposed to be kind of a victory lap for the Federalist Society, which is the kind of uh, right-leaning conservative legal network that has you know, played such an enormous role in Trump's success at, at confirming uh, conservatives to the, to the federal bench. Um, Gorsuch spoke at the event in 2017 where he, you know, he proudly declared that originalism and textualism aren't going anywhere on my watch, so this will be really interesting to see what kind of tone Kavanaugh strikes at tonight's dinner, which you mentioned is, uh, you know, kind of his first kind of major public appearance that he's given since being confirmed in that um, kind of bitter confirmation battle last year. Well, I'm looking forward to talking with you later next week about just what happens tonight and uh, about his speech and, and all the comings and goings. Um, Jimmy, as always, it's been great chatting with you this week. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in.
We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Suzanne Moniak and Mike Curley. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.